Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over them, This is the king of the Jews. What we observe this evening is often called the seven last words of Christ. But to label them that way is to deny the resurrection, because these are not the seven last words of Christ. In the New Testament, the last word of Christ is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? After the resurrection, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. Those are the last words of Christ. These are the words from the cross. And there were seven of them, recorded in all four Gospels. And the first one is taken from just the Gospel according to St. Luke. Father, forgive them, he said, for they know not what they do. The first word of the first word was Father. He taught us to pray our Father. And so he began his prayer the same way. Father, forgive them. He taught forgiveness. And so he prayed for forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Who are them? 
Is it the soldiers, the Roman soldiers? Is it that beltway crowd we talked about during the Lenten services? Is it the Jews in general? It's probably all of them. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They probably didn't think they needed forgiveness. But Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And behind that, I hear, Father, I forgive them. Would you please forgive them? Forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that what the person did is okay. Forgiveness means that whatever the offense is, whatever happened, it no longer matters. Once you forgive someone, whatever happened, you remember it all right. But that is no longer a barrier between you and the other person. And forgiveness, forgiveness is really hard. But if you don't forgive, if you hold a grudge, that's like a cancer. It's like a poison against you. It makes you bitter. It makes you sour. And for a Christian to hold a grudge, it seems to me, it cuts you off from full communion with Jesus Christ our Lord. On the other hand, forgiveness is freedom. Forgiveness is freedom from the past, freedom from all the bad stuff that was inside of you. Forgiveness is not easy. And so often, forgiveness is not deserved. But then our forgiveness through Jesus Christ is not deserved either. So Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Let us pray. Lord God, as your Son prayed for forgiveness for those who crucified him, so empower us to forgive those who have sinned against us, so that we may more perfectly live what Jesus and what we claim to believe. Amen. Today you will be with me in paradise. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our sins. 
but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Hymn 112, verses 4, 5, and 6. Scholars tell us that it was not unusual for people who were crucified to speak to each other. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus records that one of his friends was crucified, and Josephus went to talk to him while he was on the cross. The cross, of course, is a means of execution. And when we as a society do executions, we like to do them quick. We like to do them as painless as possible. And um, we like to do them private. The Romans were not that way. The Romans enjoyed crucifying people in public and making the crucified person suffer because there was always a message behind crucifixion. And the message was this. If you are not a good citizen, if you don't mind your business, if you're not loyal to Rome, you could wind up on the cross just like those guys. So there were three of them. Two thieves and the one we know our Lord Jesus Christ. The two, they might have been revolutionaries, thieves, bandits, who knows. I think they wanted to die tough. And so one of them yells at Jesus, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Accusing Christ of not being able to, not being the Christ because he couldn't save himself. But the other guy, the other guy was different. Maybe he heard the word Father. Maybe he heard the word forgive. Maybe he had heard the preaching of Jesus. And he saw something in Jesus. And he spoke to Jesus. And in his speaking, 
He sounds like the prodigal son. Listen to this. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Doesn't that sound like the, the prodigal son coming with repentance? And then he asks Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, friend, today you and I will both die. And today you will be with me in paradise. I get asked from time to time if a person can be saved without being baptized. And that's usually asked by someone who is trying to avoid being baptized. And they point to the thief on the cross. And my answer is, well, he didn't have much of a chance to get baptized, did he? The incident of the thief on the cross reminds me of three things in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, the person who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the third thing it reminds me of is the parable of the guys who went to work in the vineyard. Remember, someone at 6 o'clock in the morning, someone at 9, someone at 12, someone at 3, and when it was payday, they all got paid the same. And that was to show the generosity of the landowner, the generosity of God. Now, here is a guy who shows up as the pay is being given. He hasn't done a lick except ask for mercy. And the meaning behind all of this is this. It's never too late. It's never too late to come to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your patience and your mercy. For we have just met a man who barely knew Jesus and had been in rebellion against you and against society. Yet because he asked for forgiveness, he received it. We thank you that we too receive such grace through the death of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Hymn number 112, verses 7, 8, and 9. From the cross, Jesus has so far spoken twice, and each time directed his attention at people. First to the crowd, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then to the thief, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then he sees his mother. his mother at the foot of the cross. He sees Mary. Mary, who carried her, carried him in her body while she was yet unmarried. Mary, who saw the shepherds, who saw the wise men, who saw the star, who saw the gifts who pondered all those things in her heart. Mary, who when Jesus was 12 years old, went and scolded him because after they had gone to the temple and gone back to Nazareth, he stayed behind and he caused them to come looking for them full of fear and fright that their boy had been lost. Mary, who when Jesus first began his ministry, Mary and Mary's sons, Jesus' brothers, came to take him away. Because they thought he was crazy. They wanted to get him out of society, get him back to Nazareth. He saw Mary. Can you imagine when their eyes met? He looking down and she looking up. Mary. And she looked up at her, looked up at him. That was her son. That was her baby. Isn't it right, moms, that no matter how old the kids are, they're still your baby. That was her baby up there. 
suffering on the cross up there, dying on a criminal as a criminal up there, dying in shame and disgrace. That was her baby. How her heart must have been broken. And when their eyes met, her eyes awash with tears, and his heart breaking because she was hurting. And he didn't say, It's okay, Mom. He didn't say, Don't worry. He did something very practical. He took care of her. Because standing right next to her was John, the beloved disciple. And so he said to her, Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. He said to John, Take care of my mom. You have to wonder where Jesus' brothers were. Evidently, they did not make the trip to the festival that year. They stayed back in Galilee. Mary traveled with the women who traveled along with Jesus, and she was there by herself with those women, and she needed help. And he gave it to her by turning his mother over to John. How he loved her. And how she loved him. And how her heart was breaking. And when he died, her heart must have been shattered. And it stayed that way. Until a couple of days later, she heard the news. He is risen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the love you showed to your mother as she gazed up at you as you suffered on the cross. Continue to empower us that we might love our family members, might care for them, and might live in such a way that we give you glory and set an example for them. Amen. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Hymn 112, verses 10, 11, and 12. Of all the words from the cross, this is the most difficult one to deal with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it appears that Jesus has lost faith in God his Father. But those words are a quotation from the 22nd Psalm, and those who were here last night when we had the Lenten service and stripped the altar heard those opening words of the 22nd Psalm My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some people say, well, because that psalm ends in a triumphant note, Jesus was comforting himself with, but I don't think so. Because it said he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, I think that's how he felt. He felt forsaken. And abandon. Remember, St. Paul wrote, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus didn't have any sense of sin. Jesus never sinned. You imagine a person who has a, a cleanliness fetish, always washing hands, always keeping himself clean. Cleanliness is so important, and all of a sudden that person is thrust into the most ugly garbage and filth and slime. It's so repugnant. Never experienced it before. And as the sins of the world, of us, for generations and generations were piled on him, he felt abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how he felt. But feelings don't always reflect reality. When our son Steve was three or four years old, we traveled from Iowa to New York to visit my mom and dad, and we stopped in Toledo. And we stayed at a motel, and Steve was jumping on the bed and slipped and whacked and cut open his eye. So, of course, we got all frantic and rushed him to the hospital, 
and they determined that they'd had to take stitches. And the people in the emergency room said they'd like to take stitches, but we don't want you there because we don't want you connected with the stitches. So they took Steve back. And as they took him, he said, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, why have you abandoned me, Mommy, Daddy? Of course, we hadn't abandoned him. But that's how he felt. And that's how Jesus felt. He was allowed to feel that way because of what he experienced. But sometimes feelings don't reflect reality. And the next time he prays, he says, Father, Let us pray. Father, sometimes we feel alone, abandoned by you, but we know deep in our hearts that you would never do that. We know deep in our hearts that you are always with us, even in the deepest darkness. Father, when life is dark, help us to remember that our feelings do not reflect reality and that we can claim the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen. I am thirsty. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Hymn 112, verses 13, 14, and 15. I thirst. Those words remind me of a long-distance runner, a marathon runner, who runs by a table on which there are 
jars of water. And he grabs one and drinks it and keeps on going. Some people say that this is a sign of Jesus' weakness, that he, he just couldn't take it anymore. I don't think so. I think this is a sign of Jesus' strength because like the marathon runner, he was almost at his goal. He was almost there. He had one thing to do, and that was to die. And to die, he needed to be refreshed. And so he said, I'm thirsty. He depended upon other people to slake his thirst. He hoped somebody down there would have pity on him and give him something to drink. He was absolutely dependent upon somebody else for help. And he asked for help. How difficult it is for us to ask for help. At least how difficult it is for me to ask for help. So often, like a three-year-old or four-year-old kid, I say, I can do it, I can do it, leave me alone, I don't need any help. Anybody join me in that? We just don't like to ask for help. We're glad to give it. But we're not so ready to ask for it. But Jesus, our Savior, needed help. And he threw himself on the mercy of the crowd. And he looked down and he said, I'm thirsty. Let us pray. Father, we need one another, just as Jesus needed someone to give him a drink. By your Holy Spirit, empower us to give help when asked, and to ask for help when it is needed. Amen. It is finished. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full, full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verses 16, 17, and 18. (laughs) 
So he said, I'm thirsty. And he threw himself at the mercy of the crowd. And someone had mercy on him. They took a sponge full of the sour wine. This was the, the drink of the lower classes. This sour wine, while it was not Gatorade, it cured thirst better than water. And they gave it to him. And Jesus said, it is finished. It was finished. It's one of the great heresies of our day, of every day, taught by some, believed by many, that it was not finished. That his work was not finished. But that you have to add something to the work of Christ. That you have to do something to the work of Christ. You work cooperatively with Jesus to be saved. You have to do something. Technically, it's called semi-Pelagialism. There's no test about that. Luther, in his wonderful book on the bondage of the will, railed against the semi-Pelagists who said that the work was not finished and you had to do something. And Luther laughed because they said, you just have to do a little bit, but you have to do something. And Luther said, that's crazy. It was finished. I read once of a guy who spent millions and millions of dollars to build a hospital so that when he died, that would be added to the work of Christ and he would go to heaven. It was a wonderful thing to do to build a hospital. But as far as what he wanted to accomplish, it was a waste of money. Because when we say it is finished, it is finished. Christ on the cross accomplished our salvation. You don't have to do anything. But now that you don't have to do anything, what are you going to do? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus our Savior, the finished work to which we can add nothing. Rescue us from the pride which seeks to earn your favor and replace it with a grateful knowledge that it is finished and there is nothing we have to do. And then, Father, since we do not have to do anything, show us what we have to do. Amen.
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Verses 19, 20, and 21. from Father to my God, my God, again to Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That commitment was made on the basis of a long-term relationship. Jesus had a long-term relationship with the Heavenly Father, a relationship that he nurtured through Bible reading and prayer through meditation and prayer and prayer and prayer. He had a relationship with God. And so when he gave himself up, it wasn't on the basis of some creed. It wasn't on the basis of some some teaching. It was on the basis of a relationship. I've said more than once here that the Christian faith is really about a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have, we have things we believe. But more important than that is that fundamental relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have to have it. Now you've heard that time-worn story about the guy who falls off the cliff and is hanging on to a tuft of grass and looks down through the clouds and yells out, Is anybody there? And the voice comes back and says, yes, it's me, it's God. What shall I do? He says, let go, I'll catch you. And the fellow says, is anybody else there? (laughs) You see, there was no relationship there. And I've told this story before about the little girl, the little blind girl who was going to have surgery on her eyes and her father carried her to the doctor's office and gave her to the doctor. And he said to the little girl, 
are you afraid? And she said, no. And he said, do you know who's holding you? And she said, no. But I know that you know who's holding me. And she said that on the basis of a relationship. It's the kind of a relationship that Fred, remember Fred? It's the kind of a relationship that, that Fred had with Steve and Erica. It was a relationship of trust. So Jesus, on the basis of that trust relationship, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now you may notice that the Gospel of John says that Jesus said it is finished. And the other Gospels say Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you might wonder who is right. The fact of the matter is that different people remember different things. But what matters is that he gave his life for the sins of all. If you had been there that day when they were crucified, what you would have seen was an act of cruelty and barbarity. Three men executed. One of them was innocent. But that didn't matter because the Romans killed innocent people all the time. That's all you would have seen. But on a deeper level, on a more profound level, on the level of God, the cross was an altar. And the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was being sacrificed and spilling his blood for you and for me. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave. And that was the giving. And if you want to understand and appreciate what went on on Calvary's Hill, you simply have to say, he did that for me. Let us pray. Father, we would simply pray for the kind of relationship with you that Jesus had with you, so that when our last hour comes, we may confidently say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And our loved ones may say, Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you.
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. You may depart in peace.